Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Our next topic is Earth by Design, and uh, our speaker is Dr. Eric Hedin. Eric used to teach at Ball State University, and uh, there was a little bit of a drama around uh, one of the classes that he taught. I won't go into the story here tonight, but uh, maybe Eric will will tell it at some point. But uh, Eric has a doctorate in experimental plasma physics from the University of Washington. <clears throat> he has conducted postdoctoral research at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Sweden. He's taught physics and astronomy at Taylor University, which is 30 minutes north of here, and Ball State as well, and at Biola University in Southern California. Uh, the Ball State course, which attracted national attention, is part of what he talks about in his book, Cancelled Science, that I held up here just a moment ago. And uh, since 2021, Dr. Hedin has transitioned into speaking at universities around the country with the God's Not Dead events. And that was presented actually at Ball State, I think about a year ago or so. And I attended that. It was very good. And so he's been traveling around, just flew back here to Indiana from Oregon, I think just last night. So he's been very active uh, speaking for that event. So Dr. Hedin, why don't you come forward? Let's give him a hand. Okay, well, the mic works. Okay, I'm off to a good start. It's really a pleasure to see you all here, and it's an honor for me to be able to be here this evening. Um, a friendly audience, I, I always appreciate that. And uh, so God bless you all. I, I really appreciate your interest in the, in the topic. Uh, faith and science is sort of near and dear to my heart. Um, they've been meshed together in my life uh, for most of my life. You know, I've been, uh, grew up in the church and been a believer since I was, uh, you know, as pretty much as far back as I can remember. And about as far back as I can remember, I've been interested in science. And so they go together. I'm really glad that Jeff set the stage tonight. I think he did all the, um, the hard work um, of sort of painting the picture of the connections between science and the Bible, and I, I just really appreciate how he handled that, and it just thought he did an excellent job in everything that he had to say, because I think sometimes within the church, people can get the idea that somehow science is a bit of an enemy. And uh, so thank you, Jeff, for helping to show how, in fact, the more we study science, the, m the more it begins to look like a creation story. And I, I would certainly say amen to that. And uh, in my experience with, with science, you know, that, that has shown itself to be true. And I think it's actually a really good time for Christians to be in science. You know, if you're um, a college student in science or if, you know, one of your children is thinking of going into science and they're wondering, you know, how am I going to handle my faith in a, in a scientific uh, field of study or a career? Just encourage them, please encourage them that there are so many resources that are, you know, as we've seen, books by authors at Reasons to Believe and, and many others where there's a, a support 
that shows how the different fields of science, whether it's astronomy or cosmology or the biological sciences, they all fit together with the Bible. The more we study science, the more it turns out to align. So tonight I get to talk about, I think it's a fun topic, um, planet Earth. And you know that's, that's our, our home. And so I'm not going to so much delve into more of the philosophical connections between science and faith, but rather get into some specific uh, physical examples of what I would call design that point to a creator. Because we believe that God is the creator, then we might be able to see signatures of his creative activity that reflect his character. And obviously, part of what God is interested in is, is us. And so think of what God has made as not just he was interested in making something and then thought, oh, I'll put people in there too. No, that the entire universe, and then if we get closer to home, our home planet, were actually designed specifically for us. And so I'm going to hopefully show some evidence that supports that. So this works too. This is really great. Um, okay, so... All right, I didn't know they were going to fly in one at a time, but I thought I'd kind of make this analogy here of Earth as a home for us. So um, think of this as a, a real estate, uh, real estate uh, kind of an agent's pitch for a home that you might want to buy. And um, we've got a good location, uh, built at just the right time, golden age of architecture, um, our planet solid foundation, uh, central heating, we'll talk more about that later, uh, down on the core of the earth. Um, quality with lifestyle conveniences. You know, if you think about the earth, it's not just sufficient to sustain life. There's a lot of beauty here. You know, I just flew back from the Pacific Northwest, which is actually where I grew up. You heard that I uh, went to school at University of Washington, and that's where my home was. I grew up in that area, and Love the mountains and the ocean and the beauty of it was just um, a delight to enjoy. And coming to Indiana, it's still a delight to enjoy. Just change a little. I really appreciate the fall harvest fields and the corn and the soybeans. Um, this home that we live in has a top flight security system, um, protection. Utility access, I mean, what's a home without power and, and water? Uh, even, even recycling, that's uh, important these days. A panoramic view, meaning the, the view from our, our home is spectacular, uh, especially if you look up in the sky these days. Um, and uh, fully insured, upgraded replacement guarantee. I think Jeff was talking about the new heavens and the new earth. and. Uh, we know it's just going to get better from here. I, I think of an old Keith Green song. It says something like, if God made this world in, in six days, but he's been working on heaven for 2,000 years. You know, think about how good that's going to be. Okay, so let's take one of the first of these topics, galactic design. And so you're thinking, I thought you were going to talk about Earth. Well, it turns out that Earth exists within a galaxy, which is an enormous collection of stars, uh, roughly a couple hundred billion stars, and we are the only known life 
in this galaxy we call the Milky Way. So think about that. If, if we're the only life here and this is our galaxy, then we each can kind of get a share of, you know, many stars, you know, 8 billion people on Earth and 200 billion here. So we've each kind of uh, got a share in that. Um, but the way it's significant from the point of view of God's design is that Earth happens to be, and let me see, is there like a pointer? This is really cool. Um, there is a pointer here. So Earth happens to be located, you know, our star, the sun, and we orbit around that in a particular location within the galaxy that's, it turns out to be ideal for life. Now I'll have to give a little bit of a, I guess, this is like um, giving acknowledgments. I, I didn't come up with all of these ideas. There are other astronomers and researchers that have um, found out these things about Earth and put them either in books that are written, for example, by um, Reasons to Believe scholars, which I am very much indebted to Hugh Ross and his organization over the years. But, but there are many other um, authors as well, both uh, Christian and non-Christian, who have found out that, wow, things look designed when it comes to the parameters that make up the place where we live. And so what's significant about being in a particular place in the galaxy? It turns out that if you're too close to the center of the galaxy, well, there's a, at least a million times greater density of stars in towards the center of the galaxy. And, uh, you know, think about that. If it's, you know, if you feel like it's crowded in a city, uh, imagine being in a city where it's a million times more crowded. You, you wouldn't even be able to turn around. And in the galaxy, more stars means more radiation, and radiation can be and is harmful to life. And besides, there's a supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy that um, can at times emit uh, an enormous amount of X-ray radiation and other types that's... Uh, inimitable to life. So we don't want to be too close to the center, um, but what about, you know, too far out? What would, you're away from the density, you know, why not just live off on the outskirts of town, like I kind of do now on the outside of Muncie? Would that work? Well, not really, because it turns out that for a planet like Earth to exist, there has to be enough um, of the right elements. You know, most of the universe is made up of hydrogen and helium. Those two elements alone, the very two lightest elements, you know helium, right? It's the gas and the party balloons. And, and hydrogen is even lighter, but it's um, not in party balloons because it tends to explode if it mixes with oxygen. Um, think the Hindenburg. Um, okay, so roughly 97, 98% of the universe is the, just those two gases. That's, you can't make a good earth out of hydrogen and helium, and it's really hard to make people out of hydrogen and helium. So you need other elements, and those elements are formed through stellar processes, and if you live in the suburbs, way out on the edge, then there's just not enough stars to have formed the heavy elements to make things that are useful for life, like carbon and oxygen and nitrogen, and then all the other things that we need to make buildings like iron and things like that. And you can't get the silicates that are the predominant material for, say, the crust of the Earth. So it turns out there's a galactic habitable zone. And this was a term coined by a friend of mine who used to work at Ball State, um, Guillermo Gonzalez, a professor of astronomy. And uh, so it's, 
it's not too close to the center and it's not too far out, it's just right. Well, we'd better move on. Um, so the timing of when our Earth was formed from a cosmological perspective, you know, from the scientific perspective, is just right as well. Actually, our Earth was formed in the history of the universe as early as it could have been in order and still let it have the right mix of elements. And it was formed at an ideal time. There's a couple things mentioned here. I think I just advanced the slide instead of pushing the uh, pointer. Um, so what makes it important? One of the things in this fourth bullet point mentions long-lived radioactive isotopes. This really sounds like a physics lecture now, but long-lived radioactive isotopes are so important. By that, I mean things like uranium, uh, thorium, even potassium that are radioactive elements. And in particular, those first two need to be in the Earth's mix of materials, like in the core of the Earth, because as they decay, they give off heat, and that is important for keeping the core of our Earth hot. And you might not have been worried about this lately, but you should. <laughs> we don't want the core of our Earth to cool off, because if it does, uh, life on Earth would, would cease. So the correct abundance of these radioactive elements um, was at its peak right about the time when Earth was formed. Another thing about the timing has to do with the frequency of supernova explosions. Massive stars, uh, eight or more times the mass of our own sun, at the end of their relatively short lives will explode in an enormously powerful explosion where one explosion will be releasing as much energy for a short time as all the other stars in the galaxy combined. And one of the good things about these is that it produces a lot of the heavy elements we need on Earth. But of course, if you can imagine an explosion that outshines the rest of the galaxy happening too close to Earth after life has happened, that would essentially sterilize the Earth. And so Earth's appearance and the life on Earth had to be timed to be late enough in the history of the galaxy so that the rate of supernova explosions um, had died away, which naturally happens. They become fewer and fewer as the galaxy ages. And so our timing is spot on. Okay, let's look at location, not within the galaxy, but the location of Earth within the solar system. So the solar system, this is like our close to home environment. You know, this is the region of space where NASA and other space agencies have been sending out space probes. So it's got the sun in the center and the, I still think nine planets, even though officially Pluto has been uh, kind of demoted to a dwarf planet or they have other kind of um, more scientific names for it. But let's see, why are we in the right spot within the solar system? And it has to do with a few factors, but primarily we need to have the right amount of heat coming towards our planet from the sun. And by the right amount, astronomers typically think, okay, if we're going to have life, at least we have to have liquid water on the planet. And, you know, water freezes at what, zero degrees Celsius, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and it boils at 212 Fahrenheit or 100 Celsius, and it turns to vapor. And so your temperature range for the planet 
has to be kind of between those two, and that depends on how close the planet is to the sun. And so this is known as just the maybe circumstellar habitable zone. And, and it turns out that there's only one planet in our solar system that's in that zone, and it's Earth. Okay, so you, you can begin to draw the conclusion that we're really lucky as we begin to go through a number of these design parameters, or you could think somebody planned it this way. There was, there's evidence for a creator who intended us to live. And there are other factors that are determined, that are important for our survival, that depend upon the distance of the Earth from the Sun. And some of them have to do with, for example, the amount of ultraviolet radiation. So it turns out it's not just heat, you know, how warm is it, but stars put out a broad spectrum of wavelengths, you know, from even some X-rays, ultraviolet, visible, infrared, going towards the longer wavelengths, and then, you know. So we need ultraviolet for certain processes, in particular, it's, it's significant for um, biochemistry, photosynthesis, and so on, but we don't need too much of it because it can be dangerous. So there has to be a just right amount, and so there's an ultraviolet zone where it's suitable for a planet, and again, we're in that. Um, now, it mentions here that the ideal location for a planet around a star depends on the host star's mass. And this is important for us to consider and a legitimate kind of a, I guess, topic of investigation because scientists know now that we're not the only show in town, meaning we're not the only solar system. Well, yes, we are because solar system, that's actually the name of our sun is Sol. And so we're the only solar system, but we're not the only planetary system. There are many other stars. There's actually over 5,000 other planets that have been discovered um, indirectly, but uh, I mean, we don't see them exactly, but we see the evidence of them um, orbiting other stars out there in our galaxy. And so we can think about, well, how likely is it that other stars might be suitable as um, stars that have planets that could support life? Um, well, it turns out that the most common stars have a mass that's much less than the sun. So the sun's mass is shown here as one, you know, one solar mass. Most stars are much smaller in mass, lower mass stars. Those are far more common. But none of those would be good candidates to have habitable planets. And the reason is that to keep a planet around a small star warm enough planet would have to orbit closer. Make sense? And, and yet that's a problem. And the reason is that if a planet orbits too close to a star, it becomes what's called tidally locked. And that's a phrase that means after time, you know, after so many years of revolving around that star, one face of the planet will get locked so that it always faces the star, so that essentially the rotation rate of the planet matches the kind of gear of that planet. And guess what? That's happened in our solar system. There's two planets closer to the sun.
than Earth, right? There's Venus and Mercury, and both of them are, are tidally locked. And that means that they have one side almost continuously receiving the sun's heat, and the other side is always in a total darkness of night. I mean, think about how that would cause climate change on Earth. You know, we're worried about a, a degree or two of temperature difference, but what if Earth got tidally locked where one face of the Earth was always towards the sun and it never changed? Okay, that would be disastrous for any sort of advanced life. And that's almost certainly going to happen with any planet that's in the habitable zone closer to a small star. Larger stars, you know, here's one twice the mass of the sun. Slight problem there. I mean, you can push the planet further out and it you know, doesn't get too much heat then. But larger stars have short lifespans. The more massive the star, the shorter the lifespan. In fact, a star that's just one and a half times the Earth's mass, I'm sorry, one and a half times the sun's mass, its lifespan would already be finished. Um, if you think about the age of the Earth, and how long it's been around, these stars that are more massive than the sun don't even last that long. And plus they put out more ultraviolet radiation and, and um, they're more unstable, there's more flaring, and it's, it's just not um, ideal. So the sun is, is ideal, we're in the ideal location, we're the only one of our planet that is. It turns out these other planets are not just like the unlucky ones and you know we might as well not have them here. I'll talk more about the other planets in a bit. Um, but for now, back to our, our star, some of these points I've already mentioned, but um, one of them has to do with the, the mass. Um, if it orbits too closely, it becomes tidally locked. Um, and in fact, some of this uh, mass parameter is connected also with the amount of ultraviolet radiation and instability of the star. We can't handle our sun being temperamental, right? It's, our life is dependent upon constant um, stellar output. And it, in particular, we can't, we, meaning life, like us, we can't handle sudden changes in the star's output. And that could happen if there's a lot of um, flaring and um, kind of unstable activity, almost like volcanic eruptions on the surface of the star, which do happen now and then. So our star is particularly stable, and again, it looks like there's a design system here. Um, so I reiterate here, I think it's an interesting point. Uh, just 1.4 times our star's mass, that's too big because it's too short of a lifespan. It couldn't support life on Earth over the long run. And also it's interesting to look at our own sun, the solar flare activity. This is a, a figure from um, Reasons to Believe. But the flaring activity has reached a minimum at exactly the age of the star where we are now. And so this is, this is the time we live. It's when the unstable, dangerous activity of the star is at its minimum. So again, it's beginning to look more and more like designed. I was going to say Christmas, but that comes later. Okay. Um, now, what about those other planets? Um, we have what are called gas giants orbiting 
in the outer part of our solar system. You know, if we go out from Earth, we come to Mars. It's smaller than the, the Earth, and then the asteroid belt, and then Jupiter. And Jupiter has more mass, I mean, it really is a giant, more mass than, any, than all the other planets put together. It's not just more massive than any other planet in our solar system, it's more massive than all of the rest of them put together. And so these Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune in particular, um, it can be shown that they're really necessary for the long-term stability and livability of planet Earth. And one of the reasons is that they act as a gravitational shield. Um, I can still remember when there was a, um, a comet that was coming into the inner solar system. It could have perhaps um, hit one of the inner planets, but Jupiter sucked it in with its massive gravity. And it, as it did, it broke the comet up. And I remember seeing pictures of this comet uh, hitting uh, the surface of Jupiter. So comparing to other star systems, remember I mentioned there's many others out there that have been discovered. Most of them have the large, what are called gas giants, orbiting closer to the star, much closer than our suite of gas giants. And if that were the case, it would be impossible to have a planet in this circumstellar habitable zone where it's at the right distance to have liquid water. Actually, we need water probably not just in liquid phase, but in vapor phase, because guess what? No vapor, no water vapor, that means no rain. Uh, no rain, you might think, great, I hate a rainy day. But what don't we need to rely on to grow crops in Indiana? Irrigation. Right, And that's because it rains throughout the year at just the right amounts at the right time, and that comes from water vapor. And many parts of the world need water throughout the year, but it, it maybe doesn't rain enough in the summer months. So where's the water come from? Well, from snow melt. It came from the, the Cascade Mountain region in Washington, and, and yeah, there was always plenty of water even in the summer. Seattle's actually drier in the summer than this area, and, and we still have plenty of water because snow melt. And so you need water in all three phases, and that requires other design parameters for a planet and its distance from the sun and everything. Now, if we look back on the origin of the solar system, um, it's actually very complicated, and I won't have time to go into all the details. I mentioned a, a few things here, but um, the gas giant's orbital positions need to be kind of where they are currently in order for uh, Earth to be most habitable and in a livable condition. But it wasn't always that way. There were some, some shifts early on, and it, it's a rather remarkable history that scientists who study the early history of the solar system had been able to kind of piece together and doing computer modeling to show how it ended up the way it is today. And again, it's, I mean, you can read some of their comments in articles. They're, they're saying things like, it's, it's just a little bit uncomfortable because it looks too designed. You know, if you're a secular scientist and you don't want to admit God's activity and you study all this and it, it seems like there's just too many coincidences. And uh, I think Isaac Newton had it right, even though he didn't have any computers to model the 
origin of the solar system, just being able to study what he could um, basically, um, you know, in a pre-scientific age even, uh, commenting that this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the council and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. And so I, I heartily agree with that um, still. And I think the evidence backs it up. Another feature of Earth that you may not know about is that in the early history of Earth, there, there was a time when Earth wasn't habitable. And the interesting thing is that Earth's habitability was a progressive affair. It, it started off, you know, geologists will even call it the Hadean era. And I'm really grateful they named it era after me. No, but that, that's not what it is. It's... My name, Hadeen, is not quite that, but it's sort of like the era when Earth was like Hades. And it, it essentially was molten on its surface. A lot of the, um, the formation process uh, involved a lot of kind of conversion of gravitational potential energy into thermal energy and, and resulted in a molten Earth. But then even after it came together initially, there were times when there was such a heavy bombardment from debris in the early history of the solar system. When I taught astronomy, they always talk about that era of the solar system where the leftover debris of rocks and stuff was kind of being cleared out of the solar system. So much of that pummeled the Earth early on that again, it, it melted the, the surface. And um, yet there's design in that as well. Um, scientists show that without that, what they call even this late heavy bombardment, there was um, a period here um, around 3.9 billion years ago, and it again had to do with the outer planets sort of shifting their positions and disturbing um, a much more massive asteroid belt that used to exist and a lot of debris um, bombarded the Earth. What good was that? I mean, you think, okay, this is something gone wrong, but it actually brought more of the required mineral, minerals and elements that keep Earth habitable over the long run. Part of those were the uh, radioactive isotopes that keep our core molten. Um, part of it was just enriching the, um, uh, the surface of the Earth with minerals. I mean, we need so many things. If you did a little study, just do a little Google search of what exotic materials are needed to make a laptop computer. There's, there's so many trace elements that we can find in the Earth's crust that are there, and it's just like we've discovered how to use them and put them together to make uh, microchips that make our computers run. It's, it's amazing. A lot of those probably arrived in this sort of a, a late heavy bombardment period. Um, so I say a few more things about that. Again, happened um, with the kind of shifting of some of the outer planets, in particular Jupiter and Saturn, disturbing a primitive asteroid belt. Um, and then this is also interesting that the timing is this really intense bombardment that may have even caused the Earth's surface to become molten again, lasted until about 3.85 billion years ago. And then as we'll see in a minute, 
the origin of life on earth, the very earliest history of primitive life. I'm not, I'm not talking about primitive as in Neanderthals. I'm talking about primitive as in single-celled microbes. The very earliest life shows up at that same time or, or just in a geologically indistinguishable moment after that time, which means it doesn't leave billions of years for evolution to create life by some sort of a random mutation chance survival of the fittest process. It has, again, all the earmarks of a special creation. So let's talk about something that is even closer to home, our moon. Um, there's a, a kind of a two scale. I mean, those are scale photographs, but obviously our moon is not that close, but just put them together so we can see. Um, our moon is roughly 60 Earth radii away. So, you know, the radius of the Earth is from the center to the edge. If you take that center to the edge distance of the Earth, the moon should be about 60 of those out, but that would put that off the page. Um, so what's special about our moon? Um, scientists are really baffled about our moon. It's, again, evidence of something special is going on. I mean, other planets have moons. You, you probably know that. Like Jupiter has got dozens of moons, and so does Saturn. I mean, we're talking like 60 or 70. I've lost track of how many there are. So what's special about our moon? It's not the biggest one in the solar system. There's other moons that are bigger. Um, but it's the biggest compared to the size of the planet. The mass of Jupiter, this big planet that has moons bigger than Earth, the mass of Jupiter is like 300 times more than the mass of Earth. And yet for Earth to have a moon as big as it is, that's remarkable. There's a factor of about 50. Now, scientists like to try to explain how things came to be. You see something, let's try to understand how it got there. So we see the moon, how did it get there? And they're not inclined to think God just put it there. And, you know, really, a lot of times God uses the processes that he created. He created gravity, he created other forces, and he often uses those processes as much as they're able to do. I believe that, really, there are no such things as just natural forces. I believe that God is at work in all things. I mean, you read that in the scripture. It says he, you know, he, he sends the clouds over the earth. He, he causes the lightning for the rain and, and he makes the sun to come up. And yet we can explain those things by appealing to the laws of physics. But the Bible says God's doing it. So I think there's kind of a overlap there of, of terminology. Well, how did the moon come to be? Um, scientists have studied this for a long time. There's different theories that we teach in astronomy that we, we then rule them out. You know, there's the idea that the moon was formed along with the Earth. Well, that would mean that the moon and the Earth should have the same composition. That's not true. Or maybe the moon sort of um, was captured by the Earth, like from some other part of the solar system, gravitationally captured and gone into orbit. Well, then they would probably be not similar at all. Well, there's some great similarities in uh, some of the composition. You know, we know about the moon because we've had astronauts come back with 
hundreds of pounds of moon rocks. And so we've analyzed the moon. We know quite a bit about it. Um, so the best theory is the um, collision theory. It mentions this here, a well-timed collision event. But the timing of that and the details of that in order to get our moon are, are remarkable. Um, one of the things that's important that our moon is particularly um, big compared to the planet is the moon's ability to gravitationally stabilize the rotation axis tilt. I don't know, some of you may remember from science that our Earth's rotation axis is tilted about 23 and a half degrees with respect to the plane of the ecliptic. Okay, uh, I don't want to sound too much like an astronomy professor, but anyway, that tilt is very useful for causing our seasons, and it turns out to be pretty much ideal for uh, having the most, uh, say, arable uh, land on the surface of the Earth. But it would be unstable, and it might wobble and tip over one way or another way if it wasn't for the interaction of gravity with our moon. So we've also got perfect eclipses. The moon's apparent size in the sky is at times exactly the same as the apparent size of the sun in the sky. Uh, that doesn't mean they're the same size, right? The apparent size. Um, the sun is a lot further away, about 400 times further away than the moon and about 400 times bigger. But coming up on April 8th, next year, you probably all know, Muncie is like right in the center of a total solar eclipse. And um, that's, that's a pretty spectacular event that hasn't happened here for at least the last 900 years, I think almost a 1,000 years uh, ago was the last time this area experienced a total solar eclipse. So April 8th, 2024, um, even if it's a cloudy day, you're going to notice something because it's going to get dark in the middle of the day. And if it's not a cloudy day, it'll be, it'll be like one of the most awe-inspiring events you've ever seen um, to have the moon completely cover the sun, It'll, it'll get dark, the stars will come out weird in the middle of the day, and it'll last a few minutes. It's um, quite the event coming up. But that only happens because our moon is just the right distance currently so that its apparent size uh, can just exactly cover the sun. So this is the formation hypothesis for the moon, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but it, it it fits all the data. And again, it shows evidence for design because I say design. Design usually means that things are kind of set up just right. You know, your watch is designed. You can't just you know, take the back off and stick a screwdriver in there and mess it around and expect it to work again, right? Um, your bodies are designed. Uh, each cell is designed. And that means they're kind of finely set up to work just the way they are. And the parameters that were required for the moon to form by an impacting object on the early Earth, I mean, this is like way before life, um, are particularly finely designed. But you can model it with uh, these eight, one, two, three, four, eight um, kind of snapshots are from a computer model that show how um, after a collision, there's the early moon forming around a, an Earth that um, 
got hit by an impacting object. So now let's just um, think about the planet again, a few more parameters. It's not just in the right location, but um, it's the right size, uh, has the right surface gravity. And that's important because for example, our atmosphere, the air we breathe is held to the planet by gravity. And there's just the right amount of gravity at this location in the solar system with the right temperature to keep healthy gases in the atmosphere, things we need like oxygen and nitrogen, but to allow um, gases that could be poisonous to us to escape into space, like, like methane and ammonia. Uh, but, but it's got just enough gravity to hold on to water vapor. All of these are very close in kind of their molecular weight which determines how easily they can escape into space, but it's just the right gravity, right distance, right axial tilt, the rotation rate, 24 hours a day. We think, isn't that just the way it is? Well, no, planets orbit at widely different rotation periods. And 24 hours is, is ideal for also, not just our wake sleep cycle, but um, for determining the uh, kind of rate of, of wind speeds has to do with the rotation rate of the planet. And um, so having even temperature distributions, if the planet orbits or rotates too slowly, then it's like one side again is baked for too long in the sun and the other side freezes too long. And so it turns out to be at a good uh, rotation rate at this particular time. Um, now, diving down deep into the core, um, there's so much about the core of our planet that uh, amazes scientists that is um, necessary to be the way it is in order for life to exist. And we have to think, scientists are not just imagining life was on Earth for a few thousand years, but for like 3.85 billion years. We can't even conceive of how long that is. It, not, not human life, but you know, for most of that time, just uh, single-celled life. But even for that to survive, the core has to be just right in order to um, make conditions suitable for life. So here's a cross-section of the core of the planet based on what we've been able to determine. How do we know what the core is like? Because it's a long ways down. I mean, I just flew back from Oregon. That's uh, pretty much on the other side of the country. It's maybe 2,000 road miles away. But that wouldn't even get me halfway to the center of the Earth or maybe it would get me about halfway. You have to go down about 4,000 miles straight down beneath our feet to get to the center of the Earth. And it's pretty much the most unexplored place in our galaxy. <laughs> um, but we've been able to determine what's down there basically from seismology, studying seismic waves. Um, it's got a solid inner core because it's very dense there, even though it's hottest, uh, surrounded by a liquid outer core and then the mantle and then the crust. Um, these core conditions are necessary for a few things. Maintaining plate tectonics, which is healthy um, movement of the surface crust that helps to promote recycling of, of nutrients, of setting up a carbon dioxide cycle to keep our climate stable. And, um, you know, the unfortunate earthquake that happens now and then is a result of that. But 
it's essential for livability. But another thing that happens is that it enable, enables us to have a magnetic field. And um, I'll talk more about the magnetic field later, but for life to exist on planet Earth, we need a magnetic field because the magnetic field acts like a shield. So think of a magnetic shield and you've got the right idea. And the magnetic field is produced by the molten core of our planet and having that molten core sustain over the long run is important for the magnetic field to be sustained. So let's, let's look for a minute at life. I, I won't talk a lot about this in terms of the biology and so on, but I already mentioned that just as soon as the surface temperature of Earth cooled enough for the possibility of life's existence, life appeared. And, and I think that's, that's pretty significant because that begins to sound like a creation story like, like Jeff said already. Um, now, life actually itself is important to keep Earth suitable for life. It's a bit of a symbiotic um, interactive relationship. If there hadn't been life early on in the history of Earth, life would not exist now. And different types of life needed to exist on Earth at different stages in its history in order to prepare Earth to sustain more advanced forms of life. So God knows this. He's the ultimate scientist. And there's a number of factors that need to be kind of compensated for and so on throughout the history that are taken care of by actually different types of life. Now, um, one thing that you, you may wonder about is, um, like I, I mentioned here, fossil fuel deposits. Pretty much our whole society runs off of fossil fuels. Um, I don't think that we would have ever developed uh, much of a technological society, meaning we would probably be back sort of in the Stone Age still if it weren't for the availability of, of fossil fuels. Um, so by that I mean coal and, and petroleum and, and natural gas. And all of those are the results of pre-existing life on Earth. And I believe that actually that was part of what God knew. He knew we'd need that stuff. And so it takes a long time to convert um, organic matter into usable fossil fuels. And it also requires exceedingly finely tuned parameters of the Earth's crust, uh, crustal materials and plate tectonics, that I, that's the movement of the crust, due to the heat in the core that I already showed you. All of those things have to be in place in order to convert organic material over time into usable fossil fuels. Um, so I have a diagram here just to sort of highlight briefly how this works. Um, coal comes from woody material that is, uh, you know, plants and so on that die and then get buried in uh, heat and pressure in time, converted into coal eventually. Um, there's vast deposits of, of coal, uh, more than natural gas and, and petroleum in terms of the energy content. Uh, petroleum and, and natural gas are, are kind of connected. Um, oil or petroleum is not formed so much from a plant material, but from living material, typically in a, 
oceanic environment that um, dies and settles to the ocean floor. And then over time, again, plate tectonics, heat and pressure converts it into uh, petroleum, which eventually converts to natural gas. So I think, you know, again, all of that stuff's there and we've been just living off it for free. Oh, well, unfortunately not. I think it's 321 a gallon now, but um, <laughs> it's, we can just pump it out of the ground, dig it out of the ground and, and, and use it. And the fact that it's available, it's not buried too deep, it hasn't, you know, natural gas hasn't all escaped. Um, it's, it hasn't all been decomposed into something, because if you wait long enough, that stuff degrades into unusable types of, um, the, the process goes further and it isn't usable anymore. Okay, uh, crust design. So I had to find a picture of a pie crust there because I really like pies. But anyway, um, so the, the top layer of the earth. Um, again, how do you get the right material that's, that's available to us. We are dependent upon so many different elements. I, I'm thinking just of, you know, supplements that you might take to stay healthy, like zinc or magnesium. I mean, these are just trace elements in the Earth's crust. A lot of these, we have to have them to be healthy, but we can't have too much because they become poisonous then. And so the right dosages of these things that eventually get into our um, plants that are the, sort of the basis for the food system. Um, like it says, too much or too little is harmful. But we've got, again, just right. I've read other books, you know, not just uh, Dr. Ross's, but other authors that have, are just amazed at how our earth has been able to develop topsoil, you know, usable soil that will sustain crops. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here in Indiana, I know that. Um, we've got oceans covering about 70% of the Earth's surface. That's, that's just right. Oceans are not just for ships to sail on or fish, you know, but they provide an important part of the climate stability. Um, without oceans, there'd be much greater uh, variations in day-night temperatures and seasonal temperatures, but also, um, you know, reservoirs for water for evaporation for eventual rainfall. Um, they do interact tidally with the moon's gravity, or you might think the moon's gravity causes tides, but tides actually affect the moon as well. Uh, the moon is gradually moving away from the earth. We're going to lose our moon. It's true. I mean, <laughs> the moon is moving away at about the rate that your fingernails grow. Think about that next time you clip your fingernails. Um, the, but the counter effect is that it's stealing energy from the Earth, and so the Earth's rotation is slowing. And we just happen to live at that point where the Earth's rotation, again, is 24 hours. It'll get longer uh, later on in geological history. Our atmosphere, so I'm just going through some of the main features of Earth, right? Um, the atmosphere is just amazing in that it um, allows life to exist. Obviously, air we breathe, oxygen, but the relative ratio of oxygen to nitrogen is essential for um, our ability to breathe and also for our ability to do technology. Like, just think about being able to make a fire. 
that's dependent on the right ratios of oxygen and nitrogen. If you've got too much oxygen and you strike a match, you'll blow up the whole planet. If, if, you, if you have too much nitrogen, you can, you can light matches all day and you're not going to have a fire that sustains itself. And so that's just one example. Um, I love to talk about a slide like this when I teach astronomy because our atmosphere also acts like a shield there's a lot of dangerous radiation coming our way, even from our own sun. Uh, there's certain high-energy ultraviolet radiation and even x-rays, and then from elsewhere in the galaxy as well. And our atmosphere, again, you'd think somebody designed this, it looks that way, um, shields out all the dangerous stuff and lets through what's most useful. So what comes through our atmosphere is visible light. This little tiny narrow band, uh, you know, we think of rainbow, and this is greatly exaggerated in the width of that compared to all of the rest of this in, uh, visible light. It's just a tiny slice, and it's so essential, and that little band of radiation that allows us to see just comes cruising through the atmosphere without obstruction. But on either side of the wavelengths of light, like little more in the blue or a little past the red, uh, the atmospheric conditions block that. In particular, our atmosphere is good at blocking the dangerous stuff. If you can't read that, it says X-rays, and then there's gamma rays, and even most of the dangerous ultraviolet is blocked by our atmosphere. In fact, I read one astronomy book one time that said, if we didn't have atmosphere, like if the air disappeared, you think, oh, well, that'd be bad, we'd all suffocate. He said, no, the worst thing is, we would be scorched by ultraviolet radiation from our own sun, and it would be enough intensity to kill us faster than it would if we just suffocated. So um, anyway, we can be thankful for our atmosphere. God knew what he was doing to let through visible, block the dangerous stuff. And then another place that it's very open to radiation penetrating the atmosphere is radio waves. And... Um, that's extremely useful for us and also not dangerous. Okay, so we're getting close to the end here. Um, magnetic field design. Again, I mentioned it's a magnetic shield. It protects us against uh, cosmic rays, um, particles that are continuously boiling off the sun's surface called the solar wind that would eventually sputter away our atmosphere Literally, our atmosphere would be stripped away if it weren't for the magnetic field that has protected us all these years. Um, so this is also this previous slide I just skipped over. was just more uh, magnetic field protection. Um, also causes the auroras, which are cool to look at. But um, climate is stable. This is almost a whole other topic. It looks like it's the big, you know, worry nowadays, like climate instability or climate change, but actually we, we have been in a remarkably stable climatary period. And um, Dr. Ross of Reasons to Believe, if you want a really interesting read and you don't mind a slightly technical book, I mean, it's not technical with equations, but it just goes into detail and talks about why is our climate so stable for the last roughly 9,500 years. And uh, the book called Weathering Climate Change, it's a recent one. Okay, um, greenhouse effect, we know about that, but uh, that's largely due to CO2 and methane in the atmosphere. 
and everyone's down on CO2, like reduce your carbon footprint and all of that. But I can tell you that in this next slide, it says without any CO2 in our atmosphere, Earth's average temperature would be about 56 degrees Fahrenheit colder. So if the average temperature is, you know, 55, it would be about zero degrees Fahrenheit. Think about when it's zero degrees Fahrenheit. What if that was the average temperature? I don't think we'd get much living done. Um, this is important for another reason in that CO2 is also, of course, air for plants. That's what they breathe. Okay, so summary here. And I want to just use this moment to reiterate Jeff's point that the more we study pretty much any topic in science, the more evidence for design we find. Okay, so even some of these questions like, what about this? You know, maybe science doesn't agree with the Bible. Well, I wouldn't look at that as a worry or a potential worry. I would look at that as an opportunity to discover new ways that will show God's wisdom in design and how he has made things. And because that's been the trend over the last many, many decades as we've studied science, whether it's cosmology or planetary science or biological sciences, what we find is that the more we study, the more evidence for design we find. So that's pretty much all I've got to say, and I'm going to bypass that. And um, that's just this book that I wrote. It actually came out about two and a half years ago, but um, I include all these topics we've been talking about in a lot more detail. And uh, I promise there's not one equation in the whole book. So um, anyway, um, I purposely told my wife that I think I'll just talk for the whole hour because I was sitting there listening to the questions Jeff was getting and, and saying, I'm sure glad he's getting those questions, not me. Uh, <laughs> but it, it depends if you would like to ask questions. I'm happy to address them, but if it's time to go and Pastor Bob, you can decide. We can do one-on-one. -on -one. I'll just stand down here and you can come up one at a time if you want to dismiss the crowd.